This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Of all the countries in Europe, it's been Ireland's misfortune to be parked next to a rather difficult neighbor, uh, a neighbor that interfered with Irish autonomy for a thousand years. But the last century has been a century in which Ireland has been able to differentiate itself and now be a friendly neighbour uh, to Great Britain. Now, during the uh, thousand or so years uh, since the first invasion of Ireland, um, the country has gone through times, uh, particularly a period that we call the penal days, in which there was a very determined effort on the part of England to exterminate Catholics, uh, to suppress their religion, and to dominate the country and transform it um, into uh, something a lot more palatable uh, to London and to the monarchy. So for the Irish, this was an incredibly difficult time because during this time, Irish Catholics were not allowed to go into the profession. So they were prevented from going into law or into um, medicine. They were also forbidden to own land worth more than five pounds, forbidden to own a horse worth more than five pounds. All of these things went on, particularly during a period from 1690 uh, to 1829, which was a period in which the laws were very harshly uh, applied. During that time, uh, many Irish people uh, secretly f went abroad to countries like uh, France and Spain. And the Irish who were at home looked for inspiration. Um, and one of the sources of inspiration was a genre of poetry in which a beautiful woman, or sometimes a very elderly woman, but in either instance, a woman would appear in a dream to a young Irishman, and she would encourage him to become a soldier, a fighter, someone who would stand up for his country. And so this genre of poetry was called Ashling. Ashling, as you see, it's spelled A-I-S-L-I-N-G. And um, this meant that in the imagination of Irish people, women had a very special place. And that's what the Ashling um, uh, connotes. Now, I, can, uh, I would just want to say, I don't want to tell you about the history of Ireland, which is actually a very sad history until the last hundred years. But one of the features of this story was that people were dispossessed from land and housing. And then uh, they went through in 1845 to 1851, the Great Famine, one of the greatest uh, historic disasters to happen to any European country. But part of the impact of all this was 40 million people in the United States now uh, are of Irish descent. So that 40 million people are part of that diaspora. Now, 
um, Irish independence was secured after uh, a revolution that extended from 1913 through 1923. But as my brother pointed out in a book that he published a couple of years ago, it was really three revolutions in one. And it's the intersection of those three stories that really are the backbone of this talk. The other thing is um, I should um, explain myself a little bit. Why am I talking about history when I'm not a historian by trade? Well, as a kid, when I was sent off to school, I would go into a depression um, anticipating uh, leaving home and being in a boarding school. And during that time, I comforted myself by reading the history of Ireland over and over and over again. And so it became like a nice mental anesthetic. So now um, the uh, story of the um, independence of Ireland uh, started with one of the first decisions that the new country, the new government made, and that is to have its own currency independent of the British pound, but tied to it nevertheless. And on that uh, currency, they wanted to have an, a symbol. Um, and it was decided it had to be a woman. And then the question became, well, which Irish woman would be on the Irish pound note? And so uh, what ended up is this very beautiful image uh, which comes from Hazel Martin, who was known as Lady Lavery. Uh, she was married to Ireland's most distinguished painter at that time. And the new government, looking for a symbol to put on the Irish pound note, uh, they asked Sir John if he would um, provide a piece of art. And so he painted his wife, Hazel, but the interesting thing about Hazel is that she was born in Chicago. And um, nevertheless, she was regarded um, by Irish people as uh, someone they were very happy to put on their pound note because she was very beautiful and uh, she brought um, uh, a, a, an element of style and elegance uh, to uh, the Irish currency. So that was one of the first acts of independence. Uh, Lady Lavery, by the way, um, lived in London and um, was part of an artistic set. And um, she was so well known that when Winston Churchill decided to um, take up painting, he called Sir John and Lady Lavery and said, could they help him and give him some advice? Because he decided to start painting and he was going to paint that very afternoon. So the Laveries uh, called a taxi and they filled up the taxi with paintbrushes and canvas and various other material. And the taxi went without any passenger with all this material over to Winston Churchill's place. And Mr. Churchill was very pleased and he started to paint. And throughout the rest of Churchill's very long life, he remained a painter. Now, why was this American-born woman so prominent in Irish affairs that she would um, be a friend of Mr. Churchill and at the same time she would also be um, significant enough in Irish society to be on the Irish pound. So um, essentially when she came to London and married uh, Sir John Lavery, 
she was already from a very wealthy Irish-American family that took a great interest in Ireland and its future. And so uh, Lady Lavery uh, also wanted to make sure that in the negotiations between Britain and Ireland, that Ireland didn't get the short stick or the short end of the stick. And so she worked very hard behind the scenes doing all the things a politician would do and dealing with very experienced politicians like Winston Churchill and other people. And so her parties were famous and um, so was her influence uh, on both sides of the Irish Sea. Now we come to an Irish-born heroine uh, who is one of the most important names uh, in 20th century Ireland. And this, uh, I, I call this part of the presentation the Rebel Countess, because the image that you're looking at here is a young woman called Constance Gore Booth, who later would marry a Polish count called Markovich, and she became the Countess Markovich. And uh, she uh, raised a little girl and also lived independently from her husband, but she was always known as the Countess Markovich, and she became a revolutionary. Now, she grew up in a highly privileged family that lived in a beautiful part of the west of Ireland, um, near um, Sligo, where the poet William Butler Yeats saw her and her sister, and when he saw her and her sister, he was entranced, captivated, um, very enthusiastic, but she didn't have any time for him. This was the home uh, that Constance Gore Booth, Countess Markovich, grew up in. She was a very fine horsewoman, and she was also someone who knew all the people on this magnificent estate, and um, she was by nature a very good politician. So um, when the poet uh, William Butler Yeats saw uh, Ava and Constance Gore Booth, he wrote in one of his poems, two girls in silk kimonos, one a gazelle. Um, Constance was two years younger. Uh, their parents um, assumed that the girls would be married off. However, uh, Constance Markovich wasn't interested in any kind of conventional life. She wanted to become an artist. She wanted to train in London and Paris, and she did all that. Um, but then she became a relentless Irish nationalist, and she insisted that if Ireland was going to become independent, that Irish women would have to become soldiers, and very good ones. And so she uh, had a great taste for fashion, and so she designed the first uniform worn by Irish women soldiers who were involved in the insurrection against Britain that happened on Easter Sunday, 1916. So she was an active part in that uh, fight, and uh, in preparation for it, uh, she not only designed these elegant uniforms, but uh, she also uh, trained the women. And you can see in this image here, uh, she's wearing a very elaborate hat, 
um, pay attention to the hat because you will see it in another photograph and it was part of her design for the uniform of Irish women who were going to take up arms against Great Britain. And so here was her advice to other women um, for this encounter. She said, dress suitably in short skirts and um, sitting boots. Leave your jewels and gold wands in the bank and buy a revolver. That was uh, what Countess Markovich said. Now, I have a particular interest in her story because uh, when I was a medical student in Dublin, I did some work for the St. Vincent de Paul and I used to meet regularly with an elderly lady who lived on a street called York Street right next to the College of Surgeons which was held by Constance uh, Countess Markovich uh, during armed combat with the British Army. And so this woman told me how she saw the surrender that occurred a few days after it became clear that the battle was futile. And so she saw the Countess surrender and she said, you know what she did? She kissed her gun before she gave it away to the British soldier who took her into custody. This was the spirit of Countess Markovich. She said, while Ireland is not free, I remain a rebel unconverted and unconvertible. There's no word strong enough for it. I am pledged as a rebel, as an unconvertible rebel, to the one and only thing, a free and independent republic. And um, here in this picture, you can see from the way she engages with other people, she's just a natural politician. But this is a very sad picture. Shortly after that magnificent gesture, and the Countess was very much into gestures, um, she um, uh, gave up her gun, but as you can see, she's still wearing the hat. And this pair of very unflattering photos, these are the mug shots taken by the British Army uh, when they took her in, into custody. Now, she was sentenced to death, but um, the sentence was reprieved. Uh, the aristocracy uh, no matter how far away she got from them, they wouldn't have appreciated one of their own being shot uh, by the British, who made the great mistake after the Irish uh, insurrection of killing the leaders of the insurrection, and that turned the whole country against Britain. So in that sense, uh, she got her way. Now, the thing about uh, Countess Markovich is after she became, she, she spent a couple of years in prison, but uh, when she came out, uh, she was a very active campaigner for uh, women's suffrage. Uh, this was a period of time, uh, the early years of the 20th century, when women were not allowed to vote in Great Britain, and that meant Ireland too. However, the Countess um, uh, fought for the franchise, and in fact, in 1919, when there was a general election, uh, she ran or was nominated to run, and she was actually elected the first woman in the British Parliament in Westminster. However, true to her character, she refused to ever take her seat. And so she was later elected to the Irish Parliament. Um, she became a champion of the poor, a champion of labour. She was Minister for Labour in one of the early Irish governments. 
Um, however, she was always such a an extreme individual uh, that she never really got practical political power that usually went to more conservative people. Uh, in Ireland, um, I would say that there's no greater distinction uh, for an Irish person, man or woman, than to have a huge turnout at their funeral. And so when Constance Markovich died in 1927, she had one of the biggest funerals in Irish history. And uh, she was mourned by people who recognized that um, she was a great symbol of Irish independence. Uh, this is uh, one of the pictures of people at her funeral. Now I'm going to uh, switch over from a military character to um, the story of some Irish writers. I'm also going to say something about Irish artists and uh, in particular Cubist artists who uh, made great contributions. But one of Ireland's most distinguished 20th century um, authors uh, is Elizabeth Bowen. Uh, Elizabeth Bowen um, was, you might say, Anglo-Irish, uh, but she always insisted that she be recognized as an Irish person. And she um, uh, spent time both in the UK, in the United States, where many universities had her as a teacher of English literature, but she was rooted in County Cork. And there in County Cork, in a magnificent house that was built uh, for her family, in the uh, 18th century, this house uh, became uh, the love of her life. And um, she wrote um, a famous book called Bowen's Court and Seven Winters. She, um, she was um, able to um, uh, cast a spell um, in, her, uh, in her writing. I'm going to read to you, uh, if, if that's okay, I'm going to read to you um, the first paragraph of a book called The Last September in, uh, that was uh, published in 1929. Now, when you own a place like that, you do need a little bit of money for the upkeep. And so how she was able to keep up the house was by having um, bestsellers and um, that helped to uh, do things like install central heating. Um, her house was very popular with people from uh, writers' circles all over the world, and that meant a lot of people like uh, Rosamund Lehman coming from New York, and sometimes they felt pretty uncomfortable since people of Elizabeth's generation didn't really see a need to um, have a central heating system, and besides, it was very expensive. The opening paragraph to um, the last September starts with, at about six o'clock, the sound of a motor collected from the wide country and narrowed under the trees of the avenue brought the house out in excitement to the steps. Up among the beeches, a thin iron gate twanged. The car slid out of the shadows and down the slope to the house. Behind the flashing windscreen, Mr. and Mrs. Monserenzi Montmorency produced arms waving and a wild escape to the wind of her mauve 
motor veil, an agitation of greeting. They were long-promised visitors. They exclaimed, Sir Richard and Lady Naylor exclaimed and signalled, no one spoke yet. It was a moment of happiness, of perfection. So what she was describing is old friends meeting in a beloved place and um, all the staff in the house coming out to the steps to greet these distinguished and beloved guests. A little ceremony and all of it taking place without a single word being spoken. That's characteristic of Elizabeth Bowen. Um, her um, house, Bowen's Court, she continued to live in it uh, through World War II. Uh, during the Second World War, uh, she immediately volunteered, and so she became an air raid warden in London. And uh, even uh, with the war going on, she had teas and uh, receptions at her house. And on one occasion, um, she was serving tea uh, while Hitler's air force was pounding the whole neighborhood with bombs. And so all the teacups were rattling and uh, there was quite a fuss. And she said to her guests, terribly sorry about all that noise. So that was her Anglo-Irish nature, her insouciance that she could um, serve tea and uh, run a sort of salon in the middle of the bombing of London and everything uh, came off just fine. She loved being in London during the war, uh, but after the war she came back to Ireland and then it was between Ireland and the United States. But she said, I liked being in London during the war because we had Mr. Churchill. And she said, Mr. Churchill had style. And so had she. So here she is, one of the last photographs of her. Uh, very sadly, she had to sell the house. And very, very sadly, the person who acquired the house had no interest in it and simply had it destroyed. Uh, so uh, this was a tremendous shock for her because um, she had a husband that she was happy with. She had lovers. Uh, but that house was something very, very special to Elizabeth Bowen. Now, fortunately, you can visit another very magnificent mansion nearby in Donnerail in County Cork. And if you do visit that mansion, you'll see Elizabeth's portrait on the wall, shown in this picture here. And the family had this rather sweet little church that was the family church and a tiny place for a vicar. And this is where she's buried in County Cork. And it's hard to imagine a more beautiful place for a distinguished writer. Now switching to two women who were Irish artists and who had a big contribution to make both abroad and in Ireland during the early years of the 20th century. These two um, women, Manie Jellett and Evie Hone, um, worked together, lived together, and as students were very close companions. And so the thing is that um, Evie Hone uh, was um, um, afflicted with poliomyelitis, uh, infantile um, uh, spinal paralysis, and so Evie Hone um, uh, 
became a, both a painter but also a sculptor, I beg your pardon, a stained glass artist of extraordinary distinction who produced a beautiful body of art. But working with stained glass, when you are yourself a polio survivor, that was very, very tough. But somehow she was up to the challenge. She was a very resilient woman. So um, Mamie Jellett and um, Evie Hone um, were trained first in Dublin, where they won all the prizes in art school. Then they went to a very distinguished studio in London, and they were trained there. But then they decided Paris is the place where art is really happening. And they became fascinated by the development of a new form of art, uh, Cubism. Now, the thing about Cubism is that if we go into art galleries today and look at classical art, it's dominated by paintings in which you see figures, either human or animal, but very much the representation of figures. And the other thing is that painting... Uh, particularly after the Renaissance um, and right up until uh, the 20th century, that painting is dominated by perspective, by the mathematical relationship between the different elements in the picture. So Cubism was an attempt to break free from the representation and from the tyranny of perspective. And so what Cubism did instead was it explored the relationship between shapes and also the relationship between colors and then the interaction between colors and shapes. Now, when uh, the two young women uh, were deciding what to do next in their careers, they um, went to the home of the most important Cubist art theorist of the time, a man called Albert Glaze. And so they knocked on the door, he came out, and they said, um, we're here to study with you. Uh, we want to learn from you how Cubism is best practiced, and uh, we wish to become your helpers and your students. And he said, impossible, he said. I haven't even got my ideas organized yet. I couldn't possibly take on students. I'm just not ready. However, they were resilient and they were Irish and they refused to take no for an answer. And so eventually he let them in. And what started then was a wonderfully productive relationship between Manny Jellett and Evie Hone and Albert Glaze. And so uh, years later, when uh, Manny Jellett wrote a wonderful book. I've had the pleasure of reading it. I have a copy of it. Her book is called The Artist's Vision. And in that uh, book, um, they describe what they learned from uh, Albert Glaze, but also he writes the introduction to the book. It's not only a beautifully printed book with lovely illustrations um, from both their work, but it's also a fascinating and very clearly and comprehensively written book. Um, as you can see here from this image, um, these two Irish women uh, became fascinated by Byzantine and Gothic art in France, but also they were very interested in um, religious subjects, partly because of 
um, the importance of uh, religion in Irish art. They sought religious themes, uh, and this was particularly appropriate for Evie Hone because she was going to spend her life doing great stained glass um, uh, sculptures and uh, objects of art. But this is one of Manny Gellert's uh, paintings. And uh, as you can see, there's no representation of a human. There are only images which are constructed from uh, mathematically arranged shapes. And um, the color helps to distinguish uh, the characters. This is Manny. Uh, she unfortunately got pancreatic cancer and died in St. Vincent's Hospital um, in 1944. Uh, Evie was descended from a family uh, that were famous painters in Ireland uh, from the 1780s. Nathaniel Hone was the head of a school of art in Dublin and um, he um, in his family artists kept popping up for the next uh, two generations. This is actually a painting, a portrait of Evie by her great friend Manny. And I love this painting because I think the use of color in bringing out the image and character of Evie is absolutely beautiful. And that's characteristic of uh, Manny Gellet. Uh, if you visit Dublin and go to the Dublin Municipal Gallery of Art, you'll see some beautiful portraiture by Manny Gellet. And then uh, if you visit the government offices where the Prime Minister, or Taoiseach as he's called in Ireland, and the government sit, the whole entrance to government house is dominated by a stained glass, a, a magnificent piece of stained glass. And this piece was done by Evie Hone to depict what she called four green fields. Um, Ireland has four provinces and um, each of those provinces has a particular motif. Now, if you look at the upper part of the sculpture, you see a red hand. Uh, that red hand is the red hand of Ulster, the northern part of the Irish um, island. And um, elsewhere, you will see a harp. When I go to visit uh, my family and go to my brother's office at the University of Cork, it's right next to a chapel which has stained glass by Evie Hone. And we always go in there because it's such lovely art to get to admire. Anyway, um, this uh, was a very important thing uh, for Evie and Maney uh, to get their training abroad, but eventually they came back to Ireland. And in 1920, they sponsored an exhibition of um, Cubist art in Dublin. And of course, um, they were roundly criticized and their work was um, vilified. Uh, some of the critics said that it was very mathematical but the fact is that uh, they launched uh, a, a new school of art in Dublin. They also um, were very strong believers in art having its place in Irish life. 
And so they insisted that on every public works project and in all the government uh, activities and, um, and schemes and projects, that art would always be included and the public would always have access to artists. Okay, so uh, these two um, uh, individuals were um, very important during the first half of the 20th century. But it was during the second half of the 20th century that Ireland really underwent changes that allowed it to develop as a very successful independent nation. One of the things that has been very important is uh, starting with the Countess Markovic and her election to Westminster, um, Irish women have had a lot to contribute to politics in the uh, 20th century. And so I'm showing here in this slide uh, two images. Um, on the left, we see an image of Mary Robinson, who uh, became um, president of Ireland, which involves uh, a seven-year term renewable on election. And she was succeeded by a woman from Northern Ireland, Mary McAleese, the first instance, apparently, of two female presidents, one signing off to the other. Um, the current president, uh, the smaller figure on the right, is Michael D. Higgins. Uh, he is an extraordinarily fine leader for uh, the Irish constitutional presidency, a man who's a scholar and uh, a, 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 a very, very fine historian. But let's look at um, the image here of Mary Robinson. Um, Mary Robinson uh, was a young lawyer who graduated from Trinity College Dublin uh, in the early 1970s and then went to Harvard and she studied law in both institutions. And then when she came back to Ireland, she wanted to be active in politics. And there was a pathway for somebody to get into um, politics in Ireland that involved, if you had sufficient standing in your university, the two major universities in Dublin, each has a Senate seat for which it can hold an election. And uh, so Mary Robinson won the Senate seat um, from Trinity uh, College Dublin, also Dublin University. So she won that um, distinction in uh, at the age of 24. So uh, when she became uh, a senator, uh, she was very interested in women's issues, but she was also uh, planning a political career. So she was very careful about the causes that she espoused. But she did notice that um, in the uh, 70s and 80s and uh, on up to the present time, women were becoming more and more uh, vocal and assertive in Irish politics. And so um, uh, she decided to um, become a champion for what uh, women who were deserted, uh, either by abusive husbands or through other circumstances. And the, uh, these women were basically um, without any civil rights, without any legal rights, without any right to own property. There were a lot of things that made their lives very, very uh, difficult. So for her to become their champion, 
involved her taking a certain amount of risk. There was a, a, an organization of um, uh, Irish women, uh, the Women's Liberation Movement, that came together. Um, they would meet um, once a week in a restaurant on Bagot Street. It was called Guy's Restaurant. I remember it very well. I had a lot of very good meals there. And Monday evening, um, women would come together and they would have loud, raucous discussions, out of which uh, came some ideas about um, how to address um, the um, uh, unfairness in Irish society. And so uh, one of the things that uh, annoyed many women was the non-availability of contraceptives. And so in rather a clever piece of theatre that makes a great story, uh, they decided, well, um, why don't we import uh, contraceptives and we can do it uh, by going up to Northern Ireland and bringing them back. Uh, contraceptives were legal in Northern Ireland, although uh, it required a doctor's prescription, um, not always given. But um, so what happened was a unique demonstration uh, in um, May of 1971, in which um, a group of uh, just about 50 women took the train from Dublin uh, to um, Belfast in Northern Ireland and came back uh, on the train with um, uh, condoms and with spermicidal gels and also... Um, they wanted to uh, bring examples of the pill, but they found it very difficult to get um, uh, the individual contraceptives. So what they did was they bought bottles and bottles of aspirin, and they knew that if they showed it to the customs officials, they would just assume that these were contraceptives. And so when the train came back, and the women climbed out of the train and they were waving suitcases full of condoms and um, spermicidal gels and so forth. And they also had the um, bottles of aspirin and some of them started swallowing the aspirin and telling the um, uh, customs officials that these were contraceptives. And so uh, the interesting thing is that nobody was arrested Nobody was given a hard time, but they had made a very important point. And by going on the contraceptive train, what they had actually done was they had now launched a public debate in Ireland over why don't we have some degree of reproductive freedom. And so um, the um, people who uh, took up the um, uh, challenge on behalf of women, uh, many of them were people who'd been on that train, uh, but one of them was a journalist called uh, Nell McCafferty, who had quite a genius for public relations. And so um, Nell McCafferty uh, became a particularly successful reporter on uh, legal issues um, and courtroom um, uh, dramas in Irish life. And so uh, one of the things that struck her is that um, in court, um, there was quite a gap between law and justice. 
And so she decided that her reporting would focus upon um, issues of uh, law and justice. And so um, in uh, 1984, um, a very remarkable um, trial, well, it was uh, an inquiry. It was a legal, a judicial inquiry. And this inquiry took place in uh, County Kerry um, after an incident involving um, a, the death of a baby. A young woman, 24-year-old woman, who was working in a leisure center in the Kerry town of Tralee. Uh, she was in a relationship with a man uh, who was married, and um, he got her pregnant um, three times. On two of the occasions, uh, the pregnancy resulted in a miscarriage. The miscarriage took place in her own home, a farmhouse. She buried the baby on the premises. She was known to be due to give birth to a child. Um, and around the same time, a baby was found dead on a beach, stabbed many times. And so the police decided to charge Joanna with uh, murder. It was clear as the evidence was pursued that she could not have been the mother of the second child because the blood groups were incompatible and there was other data that showed that uh, it wasn't connected to her. Nevertheless, there was an inquiry. Nell McCafferty attended the inquiry. This is uh, an image here of Nell McCafferty in her later years. She always went after the most powerful people in the judicial system in Ireland, and she'd say, and when I would get them to open their mouth, I made sure that they put both feet in and I recorded everything. So uh, Nell McCafferty uh, described the scene uh, in the tribunal uh, where um, this young lady was being um, uh, investigated. Here's what she wrote. In the opening days of the Kerry Babies Tribunal, a married man went to bed in a Tralee hotel with a woman who was not his wife. He was one of 43 male officials, judge, 15 lawyers, three police superintendents, and 24 policemen engaged in a public probe of the private life of Joanne Hayes. When this particular married man was privately confronted with his own behavior, he at first denied it. Then he crumpled into tears and asked not to be exposed. He had so much to lose, he said. My wife, my job, my reputation. He was assured of discretion. No such discretion was assured to Joanne Hayes as a succession of professional men, including this married man, came forward to strip her character. And so Nell McCafferty watched all this and she had an idea. So as the court was in session, there was a knock on the door and a messenger came into the courtroom. He walked down between the aisle and uh, he handed a yellow rose to the defendant, to Joanna Hayes. He handed a yellow rose wrapped in plastic. And suddenly, this little woman 
um, surrounded by all these men, she realized she had a friend somewhere. Somebody had sent her a yellow rose. It made, as it was intended to make, it made the national news that afternoon. And the next thing is, as the tribunal continued, yellow roses were coming from women all over County Kerry and in the rest of Ireland. And suddenly the whole investigation into this 24-year-old woman who'd been taken advantage of, the entire thing collapsed. And uh, that was a big victory for Nell McCafferty. Um, Nell McCafferty uh, remembered the words of Virginia Woolf. And um, Virginia Woolf wrote, There it is then, before our eyes, the procession of the sons of educated men, ascending those pulpits, mounting those steps, passing in and out of those doors, preaching, teaching, administering justice, practicing medicine, making money. These were issues that Nell McCafferty and other women, including veterans of the contraceptive train, they forced these issues out into the open in Irish society. And so here's a picture of Nell at one of the demonstrations and you can see on the sign over here on the right-hand side of the picture, um, there's an inscription that says, Thou shalt not mess with women's reproductive rights. And look at what the citation reads, Fallopians 4. So Nell McCafferty was a very shrewd individual at how to tell a story and how to ensure that the gap between law and justice was um, um, kept wider. Now, another woman who sadly is no longer alive, Mary Raftery, made an enormous contribution uh, to Irish society in pursuing the mistreatment of children in state-funded uh, and church-run institutions. In Ireland since 1968, uh, children who are found begging or in need were packed off to um, industrial schools and uh, other prison-like institutions where they had very little contact with other people and uh, they had very bad food and they also had um, to endure terrible beatings and abuse, particularly from a religious order called the Christian Brothers. Um, so um, there had been accounts over the years of this kind of abuse. Uh, however, every time there was an account, people would, the, would brush it off and say, oh, it was just um, an anecdote. It had no significance. So what Mary Raftery and her colleague uh, Owen O'Sullivan did was they were social scientists, but she was also an investigative journalist and she was also um, a documentary filmmaker. So she and Owen O'Sullivan uh, were able to get a powerful politician, um, Michael... Um, Martin, 
to get them access to the records that the state had of all the church-run institutions from 1868 right up until um, the um, mid-1960s when the last of these institutions was closed down. And there she came across um, a, a process of extreme uh, abuse and she documented it in a very systematic analysis. And after uh, the first book had been written describing all these abuses, uh, she was able to make a film that was broadcast in national TV in Ireland. And that blew the whole thing open. A very, very famous American priest um, uh, uh, from, from uh, Nebraska, um, Father Flanagan, Father Flanagan um, founded an institution in Nebraska called Boys Home. Father Flanagan used to visit Ireland and he became aware of the incredible abuses that were being inflicted on children in Ireland. He wrote to the archbishops. He wrote to a lot of powerful people. Everybody brushed him off. They said, um, you know, go back to America. Don't uh, upset us. Um, you shouldn't be meddling in our uh, private affairs. Um, and in fact, uh, Father O'Flanagan uh, became the principal advisor to President Harry Truman on uh, religious matters and also on issues relating to adoption and uh, child care and so forth. Um, so uh, Father O'Flanagan um, he was um, very determined to do something about the Irish situation. And after he became Truman's advisor, he arranged a trip to Ireland. But very sadly, Father Flanagan had a heart attack. He died. And with him, uh, all interest in the Irish scandal uh, subsided. Uh, this is a picture of um, Father Flanagan with his um, uh, young people. It was in the south of Ireland that this particularly sinister partnership between church and state took place that resulted in children suffering unspeakable uh, um, brutal, brutality, uh, terrible beatings. Uh, there was no question that some of these children had chronic traumatic encephalopathy from the beatings they took from Christian brothers. Um, so today in uh, Dublin, in the Garden of Remembrance, is this particularly ugly statue. Uh, this statue does commemorate the horror and atrocity of those schools and institutions. And so um, it's a reminder. One more uh, remarkable woman uh, who happily is still alive, Catherine Corliss. Um, she's an example of a new type of um, historian, the community historian. Uh, she raised her children, four of them, and uh, went back to school and got a degree in history and also became so well regarded by her teachers that she was asked um, to take on a big project. And so she thought very hard about what she was going to do. And then she remembered as a child, 
how there were children in an institution in the town of Tuam, where she grew up and uh, still lives. And so she remembered that there were children who were in um, one of these um, institutions. And so um, she proceeded to do her own research and uh, she literally had to pay uh, about $5 for every page of a thousand pages of documents that allowed her to put together the story that um, 970 children had died and their death certificates were available in this convent uh, where the school was. Uh, her death certificate was available but there was no burial record. There was nothing to say where these children had been buried. And so what she concluded was that after children died, and there was an enormous rate of deaths, the nuns actually buried them in a septic tank on the premises of the convent. And so um, Catherine gathered this whole story together and it became an enormous challenge to the Irish state. What are you going to do? Are you going to exhume the babies? Um, the matter is still uh, under uh, debate, but in the meantime, heads of government um, have apologized. The church has been called to account. Uh, but uh, this all is taking place because of one deeply resilient woman who uh, has come in for quite a lot of criticism, but as a community historian, she investigated this scandal and um, she brought to light a very dark and ugly chapter in Ireland's history. I'm going to describe one more uh, before I finish, and that is someone with whom I've actually been in email contact with. Uh, her name is Cloda Harris. She's a professor of political science at Cork University, and she has been one of the champions of a new form of political problem solving called Citizens' Assemblies. Cloda Harris and her fellow political scientists, after the um, financial crash of 2007-2008, um, the government collapsed, a new government was installed, and she went to the uh, Prime Minister and said, you know something, we could find a way of addressing the most difficult political problems without having partisan activity. And here's how we will do it. And they had an experiment um, that had been tried and well documented by a group, a team of political scientists. So what they did was basically you identify through polling uh, companies, private polling companies, you identify a hundred citizens who are willing to give up a weekend um, for uh, three months. For three months, every Saturday and Sunday, they spent their time in uh, deliberations on a difficult political issue. During that time, they would video stream to the outside so people could see what they were discussing. They would also have their own uh, panels where they would discuss issues. And so they were able to um, take a couple of very difficult issues, uh, the first one, divorce, and the second one, abortion, 
and they were able to produce reports where the citizens, after three months of deeply engaging in the subject, taking all the information um, that uh, the uh, government provided them, and the government was always very willing to help them. And so uh, when they would produce a report and a recommendation, then the government had the option to either shelve it or put it before the people in the form of a referendum or a public initiative. So this was done with both divorce and abortion. And what is remarkable is the uh, country changed the constitution by two to one margins on each occasion, 66% to 34%. On each occasion, the public opinion matched exactly the opinion of the citizens who formed the citizens' assembly. So I would say uh, that at an end of uh, at the end of the twentieth uh, and the beginning of the twenty first century, at the end of Ireland's first century of independence, it has shown that in politics, in the arts, in history, and um, in public life, uh, this is a nation that is comfortable with itself and is not afraid to confront a very ugly past and is now um, a model for many other countries to follow, particularly through this way of solving political problems through citizens' assembly. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.